9.24 through 27. Let me read it again. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body to make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. I want to go back up and look for a moment at one thing in verse 25. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Um, so let's say that you're, you're a boxer and you exercise self-control with regard to your technique, but you don't exercise self-control with regard to your sleep, or you don't exercise self-control with regard to your eating. Uh, I have, because of so many medical problems that I've had over the years and continue to have, you know, um, in some ways I've had to become self-taught in many ways. And one of the things that I have become just convinced about is that there, we're made up of parts that are not segregated. And what I mean by that is every part of us is connected to the other part. I mean, whether you want to spiritualize it and say, you know, body, soul and spirit and mind and all these other things, or you just want to talk about, you know, your brain is affected by your liver. <laughs> I mean, we are simply connected and we need to have a life that demonstrates discipline. Um, we shouldn't over-spiritualize things and say, well, you know, it doesn't matter what I eat. Well, yes, it does. That impacts your brain. It impacts your energy. It impacts how long you live. Um, you know as well as I do that if you've never changed the oil in your car, um, it just gets dirty and nasty, and that engine life isn't going to, uh, well, it's going to be very short, and even the quality of life that it has is going to be very poor. So we need to discipline um, ourselves in all things. Another thing that I think is very, very important is that people have an idea that discipline is confining, that it's somehow restrictive. And, and that is not true. That is not true. What you have to do, first of all, is set your priorities. What is important? If I discover what's important and I ask myself, what needs to be cut out of my life that's not important? What is it that does not contribute to my ultimate goal and that thing I need to cut out? Now, someone might say, well, then, Brother Paul, what are you saying? That you never take a vacation or you never sleep or you never rest? No, those things are a part. Those are necessary elements in being able to reach the goal. And that's something I learned far too late in life. If I want to be truly successful um, in God's eyes, um, I'm going to have to rest. You know, one of the things about the Sabbath that people misunderstand is they think that somehow man was made for the Sabbath. Uh, but that's not true. The Sabbath was made for man. It benefited man to rest one day. Another thing, do you, do you know what the great sin of not keeping the Sabbath is really all about? 
it was, if I don't work seven days, God can't take care of me and can't take care of his own people. We can't celebrate the year of Jubilee we, because if we do, we won't have any food. You, you see? So rest, sleep, getting away is just as much a part of this training as, as anything else. Um, it's not sin to, to, to you know, uh, watch a football game. You know, a lot of guys, I don't understand it really why someone would. Uh, I, I think I would like rugby a lot better, but if it allows you to rest, you know, fine. What I'm saying is you need to look at every aspect of your life and say, what can I do biblically to tweak my life that my performance for the Lord, for his people, for my family be optimal? And you need to be strategic. Like, remember, I said that even these amateur athletes that I run into almost every day, they're very strategic on how they eat, how they train, how they sleep. And uh, how much more should we be strategic? But also with regard to what is my strategy for knowing God's word better? What is my strategy for becoming uh, more given to prayer and more effective in prayer? What's my strategy? Most people are like, I don't have a strategy. Well, that's why you're not going anywhere. You see? And, and we can look at some of those strategies just quickly. First of all, um, I wrote a little book a few, I guess a, two years ago or whatever for Reformation Heritage on uh, the means of grace. And they seem so simplistic, but if they're biblical, they're biblical. You know, it's, it's studying God's word, feeding upon his word. It's things like prayer. It's things like fellowship, true fellowship with other believers. It's things like the ordinances, the supper. You see, God has given us a simple means of grace that if we take advantage of them, we will do better. But for ministers, it's, it's more extraordinary. This is who we are. And so we need to ask ourselves, what's my strategy for becoming more knowledgeable in the scriptures? What's my strategy for becoming more effective in prayer? What is my strategy for becoming more Christ-like? How much time am I going to invest every week? What would it do if we were at a pastor's conference and I walked up and I said, now, I'm going to talk to each one of you individually. How much time do you have set aside each week? for becoming more conformed to the image of Christ. Now, of course, that's exaggerated. I understand that, but I'm trying to make a point. Are we just going around in circles? Are we beating the air? Are we running aimlessly? Okay. And, and it doesn't have to be overly complex, like, for example, the reading of the word, if that was disciplined. Prayer, if that was disciplined. The reading of good books, for example. You're struggling in a certain area, you might want to reach, read Mortification of Sin by John Owen or meditate upon it. It's not extremely complex. It's just the things that we do, that God has given us to do. Now, Paul says in verse 26, therefore I run in such a way it's not without aim. I box in such a way 
as not beating the air. I was watching a boxer the other day and uh, he was in training and it was funny, he took a tennis ball and when you're boxing, you've got your hands, depending on your, your, your body structure, your facial structure, the size of your head, everything else, your hands are gonna be somewhere up in here and he put a tennis ball between him and his face. And he would, when he would punch with his, he was, he was working out actually with his right jab, I think it was, and he had that tennis ball and he was holding it here to make sure that he had the right, you know, distance with regard hand to face for his protection. You know, he was being very, very specific. Um, it is said of some athletes that they, they put a string with a coin on the end of it or just a, just a little something that'll weight the string and then punch it and punch it and punch it and do it over and over and over again to help their precision. And again, we need to see some of these athletes as a rebuke to us. They get up early, we don't. They go to bed early, we don't. They eat right, we don't. They hone their craft, we don't. Or if we do, it's aimless. There's no purpose to it, it seems. And so we can learn some things. He says in verse 27, I discipline my body and make it my slave. Now, this is what we were talking about. Now we've got back to it. A lot of people think that discipline is real restrictive. It's not. Uh, I wanted to prove this point one time when I was preaching to the Chinese and, and they, they were in shock. They didn't know what on earth I was doing. So um, this girl was playing the piano and of course she was very disciplined. It was beautiful. I mean, she may have been a concert pianist. I don't know. And, and it was beautiful. And I got up and was preaching and I was preaching on, on discipline. And I said, let me give you an example. Do you remember how our young lady here played the piano? And everyone was, yes, it was amazing. I said, well, I'm going to play the piano now. And I got down from the pulpit and I went to the piano and I know nothing about playing the piano and I beat on the piano. And of course, the, the Chinese were at first trying to be polite and then finally they broke out in laughter as I looked like a big gorilla beating the keyboard. And I said, now I want you to think about something. Do I have any freedom to play this piano? None. Did that girl who was playing, did she have freedom? Oh, she had freedom. She ran all over that keyboard. She could do anything she wanted. What's the difference? She knew the rules and she had disciplined her body to follow those rules. And because she did that, she had all the freedom in the world to do whatever she wanted. Me, I don't know the rules and I've never trained my body according to those rules and therefore I have no freedom. And, and here's another question you need to ask yourself. For what do you want freedom? Do you want freedom to be lazy? Do you want freedom just to waste your life? Or do you want freedom to preach well? Do you want freedom to pray well? Do you want freedom to counsel well? Well, then cut these other things out of your life and give yourself to specific training, realizing that in that specific training, the harder you train, also the more you're gonna to need to rest at times. And I am so glad I'm in the studio teaching you this and my wife isn't here because if she was here, she would be hitting me over the head with a board right now. But you have to take that rest thing issue really serious or in the end, you're gonna look like me and I don't think anybody wants that, okay? So you really need to discipline, but also the discipline of rest. 
And he says, but I discipline my body and make it my slave. Do you want to be slave to your body or do you want your body to be slave to you? Now, what he's saying is basically these appetites of the body. Um, there are men who are slaves. They're slaves to those appetites. And because of that, they weigh 600 pounds. Now, I'm, I'm talking in the physical realm, but it presents a picture to you. There are men who are slave to the appetite of alcohol and they lose their wife and their children. There are men who are slaves to sexual desire. And again, they destroy everything good and pure in their life. OK, they have no freedom. It's like it's amazing. Uh, people don't. Well, I guess in France they still do quite a bit. But um, when I grew up, just most people uh, had the habit of, of smoking. And, and you would see people have to stop their car on the side of the road to smoke, have to go out of a restaurant to smoke, couldn't wait up to get up in the morning to smoke. If they're at work, as soon as their shift is over and they have a break, they go outside and they all smoke. Or it's it's freezing outside and it's sleeting, but the only place they can smoke is outside. So they stand there in the pouring down rain because they've got to smoke. Is that freedom? That's not freedom. They're enchained, they're enslaved. And Paul says that he's not going to lose his freedom. See, saying no is not bondage. Bondage more frequently comes from saying yes to everything. But if you're going to say yes to that which is really helpful, beautiful, good, creative, godly, you're going to have to say no to other things. I always tell this story that to young men who are thinking about getting married, I said, the moment I looked at my wife and the, the, the pastor who was marrying us said, do you take this woman? And I said, I do. When I said, I do to that one woman, I said, I don't to every other woman in the world. Do you see that? And there's no way you can have freedom in marriage and say, I do in marriage if you don't say, I don't to everyone else. And so it's a good thing. It's a positive thing. Because it's also with regard to uh, being overworked. You have to say, no. I'm not going to do that either. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to be as biblical as I possibly can. Okay. Then he says this, he says, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Um, brethren, we can be disqualified by what we say. We preach error. But most men in our circles do not disqualify themselves by falling into some her heresy. They disqualify themselves by not practicing what they preach. And we need to be very, very careful. And I think, I hope, I hope that you're all aware that to some degree you do that. Why? Well, we're preaching a perfect standard. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That perfection is revealed in the law, in the commandments, most of all in the person of Christ, his life. And we're going to be preaching a standard 
that we're shooting for. The Apostle Paul, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, he makes it clear in Philippians chapter three that he also was setting a standard in the New Testament that he had not yet attained. Now, we, we don't need to take that frivolously. It needs to be some manner of lamenting when we see that we fall short of what we preach. Um, that's why you need to be very careful not to have pretense among your people where they think that, that you've arrived. Um, but be very, very careful. You can disqualify yourself. You can actually do things. There's, there's any sin you commit, you can be forgiven, but you may not be put back in the ministry. You can become disqualified. And so you need to take that to heart. Now, let's go back to 1 Timothy 4, verse 8. He said, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Um, bodily discipline is of profit. Okay. Um, and it needs to be practiced. It has to do with appetite. Um, if we were living in agricultural Quebec or agricultural France, uh, this would not be such a problem, would it? Because <laughs> if you didn't exercise by hoeing your garden and everything else, you'd, you'd starve to death. But boy, we live in a world right now where most of our food is found in a store and ministers sit in chairs. Okay? So I do recommend that you do something. And you do something that you'll be able to do until the day you die. Like, you know, um, sometimes I'll get overzealous and I'll go over and try to power lift with some of the guys in the gym. I can do it, but if I keep doing it, I keep going down. My nervous system can't take it anymore. Do you see? So you need to find something that you can do until you die. You need to watch your diet. You need to watch your sleep. You need to watch um, your exercise, your body. Okay? Now... So bodily discipline has some profit, but nothing, nothing compared to growing in Christ likeness. You, your wife, she may, I doubt, your wife is probably not going to leave you because you look, you don't look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. But she may leave you because you're rude, mean spirited, angry, selfish. Do you see? You're not going to disqualify yourself because you're losing all your hair. But you can disqualify yourself because of a lack of virtue, integrity, character. Do you see? And I, and I think this is something that we really need to think a lot about. Now, again, I want to go back to um, man. All you have to do is get on the internet a little bit and you find out there's a lot of people out there that really love themselves. <laughs> and they spend all day and all night looking at how they look. Um, that is a horrid beastie. It's, it's just, it's just, it's like a beast. It's, it's a trap. It's, it's monstrous to fall into that. And, and that's not something that you want. But you do want to stay healthy. And you do want to be healthy so that you can give yourself 
to godliness, to study, to prayer, to service. Why? Because it's going to last forever. Do you think, can, can you imagine how extraordinary this is, what I'm telling you? Now, you remember Jesus, he wasn't speaking in hyperbole when he said that um, if you give even a cup of cold water because someone's my disciple, you will not lose your reward. A cup of cold water, brethren, everything has eternal significance now. So how do you want to live? There are people who live day and night for coin, day and night for gold, day and night to become wealthier and wealthier, wealthier. And they continue to do it even into their old age when they're going to die and watch their friends die. And they continue doing it. But you, you need to be like them. You say, how? You need to be that ambitious, except instead of seeking coin, seek service. Seek the, the, the opportunity and, and the willingness to bless. Because everything you do, everything you build in his name, every, everything, every sacrifice made in his name, it has eternal significance and eternal reward. Verse 8, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life Oh, brothers, life is so fleeting. It's so fleeting. Give your life to service. Give your life to growing in Christ likeness and give your life to your wife. Give your life to your children. Give your life to the church. Give your life for the world. And in that order, in that order, it has eternal significance. Even, even one act of kindness to your youngest child has eternal significance. All right, now, um, he says in verse eight, well, let, let me say this as, as we go through this, I've got in my notes here. Life is a vapor. What does it matter if we gain the whole world and lose our soul? This is not about having our best life now. There are so many things that I would like to do. So many places I would like to go. I don't. Because of eternity. Because I have this hope that whatever beauty and opportunity I lose here, it'll be made up for there. I think it was John Wesley. I'm not sure, so don't, don't hold me over a fire on this, but I think it was Wesley. Someone asked him, do you have any regrets? I mean, Wesley was, you know, he was trained. He was a scholar. He, he could have been preaching in a, you know, a really big church among very educated people, but he was riding on horseback in the rain and preaching to coal miners. Someone asked him, do you have any regrets? And you know what he said? Yes. Yes, I do. 
but I don't have any doubts. Whatever I've lost, whatever I've suffered, whatever I've sacrificed, the reward is, is waiting. Live for eternity. Live for eternity. So, and also I want to say, uh, we must not only live for the eternal over the temporal, but we must also preach the eternal over the temporal. Richard Baxter said, I preached as never sure to preach again and as a dying man to dying men. Now, when, when I talk like that, you're probably thinking, yeah, well, I need to get up and really preach to all those carnal people in the pew. No. Well, you probably you may need to do that. But what, what I want you to see is this. You need to preach this in a loving, earnest manner to even the godly Christians in the pew. And you need to preach this to yourself. Don't, don't forget how swayed you can become. Because I know how swayed I can become. How quickly I can turn my eyes off of the eternal to the temporal. I don't need to point to someone else. I myself can do that. You know, I, all you see is a studio, but I'm here in a building that the whole building, this whole big structure here is dedicated to missions. I walk out this door, I'm gonna meet missionaries who have suffered terribly for Christ. I'm gonna go down the hallway and I'm gonna see others that are debating how do we get into a certain country. And right now, I got a group, there's a group probably praying for one of my dear friends who's in a very dangerous place right now. So when I walk out of here, I'm constantly being bombarded with the eternal, with the kingdom, you see? But even I can become distracted even though I'm surrounded by this. Now think about your people, people who love God, people who are sincere, people who've truly been born again. They're out there 10, 12 hours a day and the, the radio and the internet and the TV and, and the lifestyles of the rich and famous and everything else. And it's so easy for them to get distracted, brothers. So you don't have to get up there and beat them over the head or browbeat them or coerce them or anything. But you do earnestly need to remind them about eternity. You know, they're so, I got to get my kid in this school or my kid's got to be a doctor or this has got to happen or that. No, 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 no. Think about eternity. And, and you should be someone who's a constant reminder, but not a constant reminder like some, you know, form. But more like a, a, a signpost. You know, how many times in the Old and New Testament do we hear this one word, especially from Peter? Remember, 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 remember. You're there to remind them. OK. About how important it is to think about the eternal. I've written here the materialism and temporal attractions of this age. Have placed the world and the church under their spell. We must preach to break that spell. We must be a reminder. Oh, like Baxter. But, but here's the thing. It's not just, um, you know, I'm kind of known as sometimes as the meanest preacher in the world, you know. It's not standing up there every day, every Sunday, and reminding them in the sense of just 
castigating and, and, and knocking them down, but offering them hope. Brethren, no matter how much you've strayed, whatever, return, return to this vision, return to what is true. Set your mind once again on Christ, on the things above. Lovingly, kindly, pastorally. Now, I want to stop right there. And if you're strong enough, see, look at me challenging and manipulating and coercing you. Uh, we can do one more. And I would like to, uh, if possible, get through just one more part of this. And then... Um, and then, uh, then you'll be done for the day, okay? And uh, let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these dear men. We do pray for the French-speaking countries of this world. Oh God, do a work. Some of the godliest saints in history were French-speaking, and I am sure that they prayed often often over the centuries to save their people. Lord, we add our prayers to theirs. Save the French-speaking world. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.